0: Hello, everyone. It's Angeline Chen. Welcome to Immigration Today, where I interview leaders, advocates, experts, and volunteers in immigration and immigrant rights on the issues, their experiences, and how you can make a difference. Today, we have Maru Mora Vialpando. Maru is a longtime immigrant activist and the founder of Latino Advocacy LLC and co-founder of La Resistencia. La Resistencia is a grassroots organization working to end the detention of immigrants and stop deportation. Specifically, their goal is to shut down the Northwest Detention Center and to end all detention and deportation in Washington state. Latino Advocacy provides policy development and advocacy consulting to organizations and grassroots groups in Washington state. They empower organizations to organize effectively by conducting workshops, facilitating group meetings, and providing leadership development training to leaders. Maru has dedicated her life to the fight for immigrant justice while battling her own deportation case in the midst of all of this. After a long battle, Maru's deportation case was dropped and she was granted lawful permanent residency. Maru has been featured in Univision, KUOW Radio Station, the Seattle Times, LA Times, The Globalist, and many more. Most recently, she was interviewed on Democracy Now!, where she spoke about the health risks that many immigrants in ICE detention facilities are facing. Welcome to the podcast, Maru. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you for your time. So we're just going to jump right in kind of go into, uh, if we can, some of your background and go into the issues um, and how people can help. Is that okay with you? Sounds great. Awesome. Great. So can you please tell us the story, your story of how you came to the United States?
1: Um I came first actually in the early 90s. I used to travel to the border because I'm from Mexico, so uh, I used to travel a lot to the border like many people did just to buy stuff or you know just to get experience. Um and then later I ended up traveling to Seattle, Washington and I wanted to practice my English. And so I I had this tourist visa which back in the day uh in Mexico we if we were able to get tourist visa, they were forever, you know, they Mm -hmm. they were indefinite. So I had this tourist visa that I I wanted to use because I wanted to come to the United States and practice my English and then move from here to another country. Mm. My goal was here only to practice this accent because in Mexico, I remember the English I learned was British, which Mm -hmm. didn't make any sense. (laughs) Mm -hmm. When I went to the border, a lot of people didn't even speak English. And then Mm -hmm. I came to Seattle and I was like, this is not the English I learned. I need to practice this Mm -hmm. English." and then move from here to other places. Um, And I end up staying uh, due to several factors, right? First of all, we had the free trade agreement uh, of the North Americas. And uh, I saw the huge impact in the economy in my country. Mm -hmm. I mean, how can you compete, you know, Mexico with, the economy of the United States and Canada, there was no way we start seeing the the struggles that that people faced. And then we had obviously um, a very racialized uh, economy as well in policies, Mm -hmm. um, social norms. And so we saw the rise of the Zapatista movement, Mm -hmm. uh, indigenous movement in Mexico. And uh, we also saw the escalation of the organized crime Mm-hmm. Uh, taking over politics and so because since I was little I got very involved in politics I, I really got afraid that um, you know I, I would not be able to do what I wanted to do to be involved in politics and be alive in Mexico
0: mm-hmm. and so
1: that's why I saw the United States as, as my point of, of uh, traveling other places and so but I, I got stuck in the United States because of the changing uh, of the immigration laws in 1996 Mm-hmm. um 1996 was the the last year I was able to to leave the country uh because all I heard in my community in my undocumented community or my immigrant community I, st- I still had my my permit at uh, mm-hmm. that time all I heard was oh you can leave you can come back if you were here without papers they mm-hmm. will let you in for 10 years and I was like oh if this was my you know point of uh going to other places it's just not going to happen and then mm-hmm. I the, there was so much misinformation and a lot of fear Mm -hmm. that my decision was like, I have to stay. I I don't have any other option. And maybe Mm -hmm. in the future I'm able to um, fix my visa and then go again to other places, go back to Mexico and go other places. Uh, But that didn't happen. So that's why I I came to the U S and I ended up staying in the U S.
0: And you were an an adult at at that time, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I started traveling as as an adult and, Mm -hmm. uh, and last time I I, I I came with my visa and, and didn't go back, I was like 25 or so. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And then how did you live? Like, how, how did you work and, you know,
1: in the U.S. this way? Well, I learned like everybody else, you know, mm-hmm. you survive, uh, you do all these old jobs. Uh, people pay you cash and mm-hmm. uh, like I did a lot of babysitting and then I got paid cash and this this uh, couple even wanted me to to do invoices so they could, uh, you know, get discount, uh, some credit in their taxes. And I was like, <laughs> you're paying me cash. Uh-huh. and They pay me very little money. They still wanted oh, yeah. to get credits out of that. Also, we get abused, right, for, by, by, the, by the system, by the employers. Mm-hmm. Um, we are an easy, easy prey because we turn to be cheap labor. Right. Uh, and everybody knows it. And so mm-hmm. they, really I survived because the, there was the market waiting for us. Mm-hmm. to be taken advantage of. So I did all these odd jobs um, that, that kept me afloat for a really long time until, uh, you know, years later, I set up my own business because with time I realized, okay, businesses have more rights than immigrants. Mm-hmm. In the, you know, undocumented immigrants, we have no rights, but businesses do. Yes. So I'll, I'll set up my business and through that I'll survive. And that's how I survived for the last uh, 11, 12 years is through my, my consulting business wow we, so what you're doing now still the same well, one yeah i'm still i'm still surviving with, through my business yeah, but now i have good. a green card so i can actually get get a job right i can get a job with uh, medical insurance, you know, with, with the benefits that, that everybody should should have. And through a consulting business, it's great because you set up your own hours and everything, but right. um, you don't get any of those benefits. And also being undocumented, all those years that were so undoc- undocumented, I couldn't register my business as a minority business because I didn't mm-hmm. have a, a, an alien number. I didn't have a social security number. Um, so I couldn't take advantage of all those uh, small business minority-owned benefits all because, uh, you know, the lack of the, the piece of paper.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then how, how did you end up in deportation proceedings? Like, when did that happen?
1: So I got a notice to appear um, uh, via U.S. Postal Service wow. <laughs> uh, at my house in late December of 2017. Mm. Uh, it was certified mail. I, I always share this story. I, I laugh when I saw the, the envelope that had the ICE logo. I was like, really? You show up to my house, be a letter. I thought, wow. You'd be right in front of me, and we will face each other. Um, and, and so we, I immediately knew that there was something really wrong with this. Uh, because I've done this work since ICE was created in 2003. I actually helped build a coalition here in, in the Seattle area that was called Melt Ice Coalition. And that was up and running in 2004. By 2005, I was already in meetings with the Seattle police organizations and ICE in the area because of the raids that they were doing you know, indiscriminately around, around the city. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had already been in, in contact with ICE Mhm I to I they never asked my for, for my status I never let them know but people knew who I was See in mm-hmm. 2005 I was already known in the area because all the 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 work that I was doing for my community, I never disclosed my my immigration status. But throughout the years, I kept doing it. You know, I I um, I never shy away from from the cameras or or from from doing the work that needed to be done. But it's into 20, 2014 when I I came out publicly as undocumented. I joined mm-hmm. a more deportation campaign. Um, many people have done it before me. The difference though is that here in Washington, no one really had taken that opportunity to say I'm undocumented and we're gonna do a civil disobedience. And and that's what I did. And um, so in 2014, definitely ICE knew of me because we were supporting people detained at the detention center. Mm -hmm. I went to a meeting with ICE in in Seattle in their offices and they even had Homeland Security officials on a a conference video, a video conference. Um, So all those years, they knew of my existence and they yeah. knew I was undocumented, and and they waited till December 2017 to put me in deportation proceedings.
0: That's insane. That is insane. And then, so were you? You were shocked. What did you do? You, I mean, uh, when did you get your lawful permanent residency?
1: Uh, I got it recently. I got it in September of last year. Oh wow! Year. Yes, that's great. Yeah, it was a it was a very. It was very uh, bizarre and very uh, surreal uh, process because um, I, I, I was I was shocking the sense that they didn't come directly to my house because that was what I was expecting. It was uh-huh. shocking because I, I thought why they took so long to come after yeah. me and I was angry that um they made my daughter cry because my daughter was the one that opened the the letter and started crying. so um that you know as a mother i just cannot cannot allow anyone to do that to my child so
0: yeah
1: we uh, part of our work has always been to to highlight people in detention you know we we believe that no one should be detained and that is our responsibility for those of us outside, regardless of status, immigration status, to do something to end the detention of people and mm-hmm. deportation of people. And so we, I felt, and my, my daughter felt that we needed to take my case as part of the fight, as part mm-hmm. of the movement, and so we push really hard, and we say, no, we're not going to ask for asylum. We're not going to ask. We're not going to beg. We're not going to ask ICE for anything. We're actually going to do the opposite. We're going to come after them.
0: Mm-hmm. And so the
1: process for us was was kind of new, and we, the people that we, we invited to join this 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 team to fight against ICE, everybody also kind of didn't know how do we fight against ICE instead of. Asking them to let us stay, so we mm-hmm. we did a lot of motions against ICE. You know, first we say this is an illegal process because um, we actually were able to locate the I-213, the form that ICE needed to send to the judge to begin my deportation proceeding. Uh-huh. Uh, and so the form said, you know, Maru is well known; uh, is uh, she does anti-ICE activities, and she does Latino uh, advocacy. Mm-hmm. Projects for her community as three of the two of the three excuses to put me in deportation. And the other one is she overstayed her tourist visa. So when I read it, I was like, I didn't know that being against the work that ICE does and doing work for my community were reasons to put someone in deportation proceedings. So we submitted wow. that motion, but it was denied. And then we submitted motions like, we want ICE to show. To my court hearings, why I want to hear from them, why they began the process against me. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't have any of the triggers to begin the petition proceeding. So all our motions were denied. Were denied, but at some point the judge agreed that my daughter was about to turn twenty-one. She's a U.S. citizen. She she could petition me. Mm -hmm. He gave us that time uh, to do that, and so she did submit the petition. It was approved, uh, and then with time, I just did the, the regular process that most people do for a green yeah. card through their family, direct relatives, right? But it was still on the other uh, parallel, the, the the deportation proceeding kept going. So, uh, but it was also slow at the same time. Me as, you know, over a million people were waiting for mm-hmm. current hearings, and then the pandemic hit, um, and, then, and then Biden wins. And that's when we felt, uh, okay, this is our chance. And I'm part of a big network of Latinx groups called Mi Gente, that mm-hmm. um, we um, really emphasize uh, electoral work precisely uh, against Trump, but we have done it already. We have tried it in Arizona against Arpaio, the Sheriff Arpaio, we had also tried it um, in favor of uh, 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 one of the founders of so the no, no One More Deportation Campaign to run for, for city council in Phoenix, Carlos Garcia. So he had been tried before also with um, the governor, the governor race, uh, Stacey Abrams uh, in mm. Georgia. And so there was already the experience of how do we fight the system using electoral the electoral process. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, having Mi gente collaborating with Black communities in Georgia and uh, in Arizona and other places and flipping. You know, some of those, those Senate seats um, also getting Biden into office gave us the, the chance to come in and, and push the administration to say you have to make changes. And right. one of those changes was the prosecutorial discretion mm-hmm. that home, the, the Mallorca's uh, director of Homeland Security issued on September 30th of last year that we fought really hard and we were really happy to see that memo that says, okay, not because you have a criminal record makes you um, a priority for deportation. Eyes, mm-hmm. when you have someone like that, you have to take into consideration uh, uh, mitigating factors such as, you know, how long ago was the sentence? Um, has there been rehabilitation? What is the impact on US citizens if this person gets deported? All those things came from our fight. And so mm. once I, I get my case, Finally get to be heard. It was scheduled to be heard in October of 2021. After many delays, uh, we felt that actually the issue of the memo was a good chance to prove that ICE has this power that they don't use and we have to force them. Mm -hmm. And so we we went ahead and we requested um persecutorial discretion on my case instead of going to the court. Mm -hmm. And we say to ICE, you should stop this right here, right now. And they're like, okay. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Good. So, so that's how you got it
1: out of court. We got it out of court. We got it fixed. Right there, and then I said, "Okay, uh, we agree. We're not. We don't want her deported anymore. If the judge agrees to, we're not gonna appeal the decision. Let's get it done." And so we got it done. And um, it was like September, mid-September, that this this was agreed upon. Uh, We made it public at the end of September precisely because we knew the the memo was being issued on prosecutorial discretion. So we wanted to set the example of, you know, how is it possible? It is possible. You can do it. Um, And then uh, in just a couple of weeks after that, uh, I usually honestly don't don't see myself as a documented person. My identity has been undocumented for over two decades. Yeah. But I even forgot that I could apply for, I could get the, the green card. Mm-hmm. So I asked my lawyer, so what do I do now that, that they ended my, my deportation proceedings? And he says, oh, you have to call, make an appointment. Once you go there, they're going to ask you for all this paperwork and have to be, bring, you know, like passport pictures and a lot of stuff. And then mm-hmm. they're going to send you another some items. And then maybe it could take two weeks to six months. But usually it takes it doesn't take six months, but it doesn't take two weeks either to get your green card. So it could be anything in between there. So I show up. I actually got the appointment quickly. And I show up to the Homeland Security offices in the area and they immediately said, Oh, this is, it's all approved. They only asked me for two paper uh, for the paper that, you know, the judge decision and my my passport before anything else. And they just said, "Um, it's all approved. You will get it in in two weeks. And the, the guy that, that uh, was, taking down my information, kept saying, I can't believe it. I can't believe I never seen anything like this. And I was just thinking they really want to get rid of me. Um, (laughs) And yeah, and actually less than two weeks, I I got the green card in in the mail directly to my house.
0: That is amazing. That is amazing. Yeah. I mean, you're incredibly fortunate to have this background and all the support around you and, and, you know, being who you are. And but imagine all these people who just are in proceedings, have no idea what to do, right? No attorney representing them and just super lost. And, um, and you got to experience on your own how complicated it is, even from the beginning, trying to get these motions and trying to, you know, fight the I 213, things like that, and just getting denied denied. And but congratulations. And, and and also on the prosecutorial discretion policy, that's just a huge, huge win for everyone um yeah this is that's that's fantastic thank you for for that story so let's go back a little bit because i know you're in proceedings in 2017 you just recently became an lpr and you already you mentioned in 2000 early 2000s you were already building a coalition and working with ice when did you start becoming an activist and wanting to help immigrants like when does that start ha- happening
1: in your life well i I kind of um I always make a distinction between activist and community organizer mm-hmm. and I don't see myself as an activist I think an activist is someone that um, finds an issue in their life and they feel uh, compelled to do something about the issue. I think that the difference is that i I came into the United States already politicized I was already involved in my country mm-hmm. since a very early age I was involved in um, supporting uh, work stoppages, um, mm. you know, I, I, I got lucky. I, I, I think it was lucky of me to grow up in the city. I grew up seeing so many social movements merging, uh, so many opportunities to, to do community work. And also I got lucky to, to be in the schools that I was at in Mexico that were built on, um, out of the, uh, student movement of the
0: 1968,
1: uh, mm. Where they, these students and this this generation built a new educational system, public educational system in Mexico, uh, based on popular education. And so I went to schools, uh, high school and college that um, was only four hours of schooling, and the other four hours you were supposed to go back to your community and do work wow. and learn and learn from your community. So starting my my education was based on you you you're here because you owe what you're learning to your community mm-hmm. and you're learning is in the community and you have to go back and do work in the community. Mm-hmm. And so that plus everything that was happening in Mexico in, in politics, like I mentioned, you know, the, the Zapatista movement and the NAFTA and, and seeing how the, the main party at that time was taking, uh, being taken over by the crim- organized crime, etc. It just, when I came here, I I came politicized, but then I realized immediately because of the 1996 law changes that I was joining a huge community. All of a sudden there were millions of us undocumented. Mm -hmm. So I never felt that I had to jump on an issue. I felt that I was part of the issue. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And so because of my background on popular education, I realized that my role was to be a community organizer, which means I just have to help find the tools and the space so we as community can make Decisions on how the solution should be and mm-hmm. what it should look like. And so that's why I, I end up doing more and more and more on this issue. It wasn't maybe at the beginning, was also like, oh, I need my, my green card so I can go back and forth. And at some point, I can leave the country and go to live another country. But then I realized this is not about the paper anymore. This is about our identities and this is about a racialized um, um, system in the US. Even U.S. citizens, such as the Black community and and the Native American community, they don't have, you know, they're not treated as U.S. citizens. Mm -hmm. Even if we get the citizenship, we're not going to be treated as such. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it really became, to me, I need to be part of the movement and I have experience as community organizer. I'll I'll reapply it to the U.S. on how things are done here. And I jumped on uh, uh, the fight against detentions and deportations because... I realized, yeah, we can get the papers, but as long as detention centers exist, we're not going to be safe. Mm -hmm. So it it needs to be a two-way strategy, right? For one, yes, we need citizenship, but we also need to undo ICE altogether. We need to end uh, detentions and we need to end deportations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No,
0: definitely. So that's a great segue. Let's start talking about La Resistencia. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, wh- what that group does and how it was formed.
1: Um, so it was formed in 2014. Uh, after I had organized a civil disobedience outside the detention center in February of 2014, where we stopped deportation buses. buses. We made it public. You know, I came out mm-hmm. uh, uh, publicly as undocumented. Uh, less than two weeks later, we get calls from from the detention center, from relatives, from media, saying, "Hey, people are on hunger strike." um Mm. they're reaching out to you they know you're the one that that did the civil disobedience they want they want to talk to you and Mm. so we started communicating with people in detention and they say we're on hunger strike we want you to make it public um you say you're with us and you say that you want to end detention and deportations do it (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. so
1: we were tasked by people in detention to be the opening of that public campaign right so Mm -hmm. It wasn't the first time that hunger strikes happened in the detention center. I knew of several hunger strikes before that, but there was never an infrastructure outside to support it. And so we had to build it. And that's how Resistencia came to be, because we had to respond to these, these ask by people detained. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I, I pretty much ran, it was my phone answering 24 seven for four years. (laughs) Oh my God. Uh, you know, all the calls from the detention center, organizing with people in detention for, for them to let me know we're going to do a hunger strike. We're going to do an action at the yard. You know, we're not going to go to the yard or we're going to go into the yard and we're not going to come back. Um, you know, someone was taken to the hospital. They beat up a, a person in, the, in in isolation and they sent him to the hall because all mm. those things, I had to be the one taking the information, pass it on into other other volunteers we're all volunteers mm-hmm. and it wasn't really till 2019 that i realized this is not sustainable this right not sustainable. <laughs> <laughs> it so... took you five
0: years to figure that out <laughs> five years <laughs> it
1: took me, it took me five years because the people that were volunteering with us were not experiences experiencing mm-hmm. what we were experiencing you know they're all i people see. with privilege and sure so They could leave and 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 come and back and sure uh, And I tried to organize people as they were being released from detention, but, you know, they were trying to rebuild their lives. Yeah.
0: Survive.
1: Yeah. We would never see them again. And it was in 2019 when I said, okay, enough is enough. We Mm -hmm. need people that are the families and we need people that have been released to actually do this work. So Mm I started recruiting really, really hard. I I had a very clear plan. I said, this is how we're going to do it. I need to find the right people. And then the the pandemic hits. Right in oh March gosh. 2020. <laughs> but actually, it was easier because now I have all these phone phone numbers. I start calling people, I send them tutorials of how to uh use Zoom. Mm-hmm. You know, WhatsApp, I, I started organizing through WhatsApp, and all of I move everybody to Zoom. And out of 30, 40 families, we have 10 that mm-hmm. are still here. Since then, they have taken the leadership. They have taken the oh, wow. responsibility. We also have people that were released that are now part of the leadership. So, January 2022, we're set with a group uh, of leaders that have experienced the system or are currently experiencing the system because of their relatives still being detained. And they're the they're the ones are in the answering the phones. They're the ones communicating with legislators, with lawyers, with You know, they're, they're setting the strategy. So I finally moved to a a point where I know I'm okay. You know, I don't, Mm -hmm. I'm not in the same level of risk as the rest of them. Mm
0: -hmm. So it's
1: my time to start facing out from leadership. So I'm not going to leave Resistencia, but I'm going to leave the the leadership so they themselves can run the organization. And I'm just, you know, as a consultant, let's Mm -hmm. say to, to Resistencia, because, um, Again, I don't want to be that person with privilege that can just leave and come back whenever they feel like it. You know, leadership should be people that are are facing this monster and know how to how to end it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's amazing. So that to just empower the people who were affected and to put them in leadership positions, it's that's really the best way. Um, What what does the group do
1: now? The group is really focused on uh, making sure that the law that we helped passed in um, last year, in April of 2021, HP 1090, that prohibits um, private prisons and detention centers for profit for adults to operate in our state. It's, mm. you know, is maintained. Um, Gio, the owner and, and operator of the detention center here, filed a lawsuit against HP 1090 Mm -hmm. So we want to make sure it remains, and this place won't be allowed to renew their their contract once they uh, expire Mm -hmm. in 2025. But we believe, and we also seen that the Attorney General of Washington State agrees with us that we can shut it down earlier because it's a federal contract, and so as any federal contract needs to be approved, reapproved every year through the. the budget that congress congress needs to approve every september right Mm -hmm. so we believe that you know if it's not if it wasn't last year maybe this year is the year to shut it down um so we're looking also for ways to impact their 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 pockets you know it's a private detention center
0: they all they care
1: about is money so we were able to get after many many years um uh a lawsuit that was filed by private uh, a private law firm and by a separate one by the attorney general against the detention center for employing people only for a dollar a day and not paying them the minimum mm. wage and so here in washington state the law says it doesn't matter if you have papers or not you work mm-hmm. you have to get paid and the minimum wage has to be paid which at that moment was 13.69 dollars 69 per hour and so now in october uh, last year that that was the decision of the jury and the federal uh, judge they say yes you, geo must pay the minimum wage and they should pay also you know after some back and forth 25 million dollars to everyone that worked there from 2014 to 2021 so we want to make sure that that's done and mm-hmm. so you know they we wanna hurt their pocket so they have to close. So it's HB 1090 is the lawsuit. And then it's the the situation, right? The daily situation at the detention center. So the the COVID cases, the lack of, uh, you know sanitary conditions, uh, the medical neglect, Mm-hmm. Um, the abuse of uh, you know people detained, etc. So it's a combination of different elements that, that we're working on to shut down the detention center. And amongst all of these, we take on what we call individual cases. Mm-hmm. We highlight people so uh, they're free, they're released from detention because of COVID. Um, the prosecutorial discretion, we actually file a prosecutorial discretion for one person that was denied. Um, and so we want to We wanna continue pushing for release, but also to emphasize that we can not trust ICE. They're not gonna do the right thing ever because they Mm -hmm. weren't built to do that. They were built to just, you know, hunt down our communities in the portals and make money on the way there for them or for, for, you know, private companies because they keep getting more money every year in Congress for their budget as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Although the tensions are lower, right? And if you see ICE, the tensions are lower than ever, Um, In comparison to CBP, for example, the Border Patrol have higher detentions right now than than ICE does. How come are they getting more money than years prior? Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, really our intention is we shut down the detention center here, but we we want to really uh, dismantle the entire agency. And it's its just different ways of how we go about it, parallel one of each other, and then Mm -hmm. they're mixing, you know, they're converging at some points. But the goal is always to shut down the detention center first.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the Northwest Detention Center that you, you you do focus on. I know you work on more than that. and, and um, But uh, I believe Northwest Detention Center is closest to you guys, right? Um, can you give us a little bit of facts about what's going on there? How many immigrants are detained there? And you mentioned a little bit about the conditions in COVID. If you can go into those
1: um, details too, that'd be great. Yeah, so the, the detention center actually has a capacity for 2,000 people. And it's funny mm-hmm. because they they officially say it's 1,575, but when the pandemic began, uh, people in detention that worked at that time in the kitchen, they they sent us um, uh, the list of uh, pots uh, to have distributed food, and mm-hmm. we realized that the real capacity is 1,975, um, and they always say 1,575. Um, right now, and because of the pandemic and all, the efforts, so we have the last figure we saw people detain is 395, mm-hmm. which is low uh, for us. Our perfect number is zero. Um, sure. But 395 that are still uh, mixed in, in these spots, right? There's, there's these units um, mm-hmm. uh, that can go from anywhere to 50 to 100 people capacity. I just talked to a guy right now before being here with you. Um, and he told me that, um, because every time people call us, we ask them, okay, so which, which, uh, pod are you at? You know, how many people are with you? How are Mm -hmm. things doing? And he says, there's 30 people with me. So 30 people. Wow. And we're in a pandemic, um, and I talked to another guy the other day and he said, oh no, I don't think, in a different pot. And I was like, how many are there? And he's like, I don't know, I haven't counted. And I was like, I don't know, 30, 40. And he's like, oh no, way more than that. There's more than that here. I don't know, I, I can not tell you, like I haven't counted, but it's we're not 40, there's more, more than that. Um, so it shows to you that even if the population is low, the, the confinement is big, right? They still mm-hmm. put people into uh, big numbers into these units to live with each other 24 seven. Mm. And the problem that we've seen, like, right, you know, even if you're not in a detention center, you've seen this spike on number of COVID cases. This is mm-hmm. everywhere. You know, they're saying this Omicron is uh, variant is much more um, spreadable than, than what we've seen before. Mm-hmm. And what we uh, are able to find out is that there's more COVID cases too, but also in uh, in the detention center, but mainly on employees of the detention center. Yeah, So the reason why we're able to find out that is because there was a lawsuit that was filed in May 2020 that is still pending in part of that lawsuit. uh, Well, it was filed because this legal organization said um, to the judge, hey, you should release people that are vulnerable to COVID-19. The judge has not agreed with us. Um, But part of the lawsuit says ICE is to notify the judge within 24 hours of a COVID case.
0: Mm, that's the only reason. Yeah, right. Have,
1: yeah. And so that's the only reason why we're <laughs> able to get the information. They don't notify within 24 hours. And we know this is not exact, the information, but at least we have some information.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So if it wasn't because of that, we wouldn't know about the, the cases of COVID in employees. Mm-hmm. We would probably only know about uh, people detained. Mm-hmm. And people detained are not told anything. Even when they turn out to be positive, they don't know because they're only moved to isolation. Um, or they're tested, you know, the, there's all these cases lately that have been happening, and I'll give you the numbers in a sec. Um, people say, well, they came and tested us and they left. They didn't tell us anything. They came back, yeah. they tested us again, and they left. And we still yeah. don't know what's going on. And they, they took one person. We believe that person is positive. Now we're all afraid we're positive. We don't mm-hmm. know what's going on. So if you imagine being already incarcerated with this uncertainty of what's going to happen with my case, I don't mm-hmm. have a lawyer. My family doesn't have money to send me anything to survive in here. My Mm -hmm. family also has COVID. I have terrible, horrible uh, food here. Um, And I suffer already, you know, these underlying conditions uh, that make me vulnerable to COVID-19. And they don't tell me anything about what's going on here. Can you imagine the level of stress? It's huge. And so what just, just in, during this month, um, the month of January, so far, you know, about two weeks into, halfway into January, yeah, there's been uh, nine cases of uh, people detained with COVID, mm-hmm. um, twenty cases of guards, geo guards, with COVID, and four ICE employees. One of them that works in the in oh no two cases no 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 yes I'm sorry four cases of ICE employees and one of them working in the medical unit. Oh my gosh. That's just, you know, what what we have so far in January. And that's not counting December and not counting the. Rest. So the number of employees surpassed with COVID, surpassed the number of people detained with COVID.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's what people in detention have told us again and again. The reason why we get COVID is because of the ones that come then- in into the detention.
0: Sure. Center. Sure. And, and then are they, but if, I mean, are are there are there masks in there? Are they using the right masks? Are they are they vaccinated? Is there any of that? Well,
1: cleaning. uh, Good, good, good questions. Thank you, thank you, Angeline, for those questions. um, (laughs) Because, well, let's start with masks. You know, the the detention center here shut down to social visits in March 2020. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: People in in the detention center staged. uh, an action in the yard, in one of the yards in the back of the detention center, where we went and took um, aerial photos. They spelled SOS oh. in April 15 of, of 2020. So sad. And they did that to say, we have no masks. There's no social distancing. You know, oh we tell eyes, how do you expect us not to get sick? And all they will tell us is, well, you know, you sleep head to head. Well, just move around. And then you're not head to oh head, you're feet to head. Um, And so once they did that and we published the pictures, then GEO started distributing masks and they only distributed the masks two to three times per week. So Mm -hmm. people were expected to reuse their masks, the regular blue, you know, disposable masks for Mm -hmm. two days, for three days. Um, Guards were not uh, um, required to use masks until Mm -hmm. we started. Um, you know, we we do video calls with people detained and we show pictures where people were talking to us and in the back, there's a guard walking by with no masks. So we start publicizing those and they finally start wearing masks um, because they're federal contractors. They're not required to be vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Um, during the beginning of the pandemic, we heard a lot of uh, people in detention saying, you know, the guards here, they don't believe in, in the virus. hmm they're making fun of us for requesting vaccinations um they don't really take care of themselves uh, mm. then finally we start seeing some efforts to get people vaccinated the johnson and johnson and then later uh we heard cases of no well i get it but i'm not sure if i got it i got something i they didn't tell me or i didn't understand or yes i got vaccinated but i didn't get my vaccination card how am i going to prove that i'm vaccinated oh my god um and now we're asking about boosters, right? We're asking people, have you, have you requested your booster? And people said yes, um, but I don't know. They haven't responded. Some guy said, I asked for, for my second doses, but I don't want the Johnson & Johnson because I heard on the news that the CDC recommended Moderna and Pfizer, not Johnson & Johnson. Right. And so I asked the, the doctor here, hey, I want another one. I don't want the Johnson and Johnson. And the doctor told me, oh no, that's not possible. You cannot mix vaccinations. Oh, God. Said, but I just heard on the news. Everybody knows you, you, there's no problem with mixing vaccination. And CDC is recommending the order two over Johnson and Johnson.
0: Yeah.
1: No, no, we can't. We, if you don't want it, then we won't give it to you. Yeah. Um, and now in all the, the notices that ICE sends to the judge about COVID cases, what we notice is that if the notices are in regards to employees,
0: mm-hmm.
1: if those employees are vaccinated, ICE will mention it. This person has been vaccinated. Mm-hmm. But most, I would say that at least 80% of the notices that I've read about employees at NWDC with COVID, ICE does not mention vaccination status. Therefore, mm-hmm. it makes me believe that these people are not vaccinated. They're not. And they're not required to be vaccinated because they're federal contractors. And for ICE, I don't know. I assume they were, but you know, again, ICE does whatever they want.
0: I can't believe it. I mean, I mean, I believe it. it's, it's just so it's so awful. I mean, even for themselves, like even for the, just the guards, I guess it's because they don't really believe it or they think they're healthy. And if they get it, they get it. And of course they can care less if the detainees get it. Um, it's, it's so sad. So what, what can people, or or what can people do to close these detention facilities?
1: Um, Well, it's not insane. Mm -hmm. it's not an easy process, right? Because there's so many elements within these, and especially for detention centers, such as this one that is a a business. There are other businesses as well that are sustained. Yeah, they're sustained by by people being detained. And so it takes a lot of, of years and efforts and different strategies to get it done. For us, like I say, it was state legislation plus a bunch of lawsuits that have been filed. Uh, the, the exposure of uh, you know the the conditions every day, um, supporting people's actions inside the detention center. Uh, it's really a, a full time job for all of us, and we're all volunteers. Um, mm-hmm. So for us, it's very very important when we get something in social media that people share it because it does create an impact. You know, once you start sharing it, people realize. Um, you know, for years and years that I've supported hunger strikes, I've always heard the same thing when people go on hunger strike, they say, I know I'm not going to change anything right now, but if people knew outside, if they only knew what's going on Mm in here, these places wouldn't exist. And I don't want anybody in the future to go through what I'm going through. Mm -hmm. And so just even sharing those, those posts in social media, it has a huge impact for, for our work. Um, for sure, getting involved in your own communities wherever you're at. There's always a, a group of people that are you know crazy enough like us to say we believe that we can shut it down. So mm-hmm. there's a big, big group, you know, across the, the, the country of groups like ours, like ours, that um we're working together. For example, we are working directly with California and Oregon right now to make sure that our entire west coast is free of the tensions mm. that there's. Um, You know, we have gotten great wins in, in California, um, Oregon, Oregon passed the best law so far in a state against Mm. detention, not only private, all detention of immigrants. They're like, no, we don't want any detention of immigrants in our state. Thank you very much. Um, So joining those local efforts um, and supporting our work uh, for sure, you know, we're going to be celebrating our eighth anniversary in March, and we're going to have a a celebration. We're gonna do a fundraiser because we're all volunteers. Yeah, uh, you know, we we don't want to make money out of this. <laughs> That's not yeah. our job. We we wanna we when we created resistencia and we agree with in one detention centers, um, we build it as a campaign, and so we mm-hmm. wanna win the campaign and say, okay, we're done with this. Now we're gonna move to another thing, but we don't wanna create jobs out of this. We don't wanna mm-hmm. we don't wanna be doing what others do of us right to make money out of our own misery and so we depend on, on donations big time that's you know that's it we we have all these years on donations and we will continue until we shut it down so people are invited on, on march 6th we're going to have a virtual and a small small in-person uh, event mm-hmm. only for few because we want to be safe with covid sure. uh, but, but uh, people don't have to wait till march 6th they can also send us uh donations through our our PayPal in our website or, you know, mm-hmm. get in touch with us through social media. Um, and if you're in the area, if you're in the Tacoma area, we always need volunteers. And even if you're not here, like if you have communications, you know, or arts skills that you want to share with us, interpretations, translations to mm-hmm. different languages, not only Spanish, we are always welcome new volunteers for sure.
0: Yeah, no, thank you so much. We're definitely going to post that in our, um, in the, it, in in the bio, um, your links uh and uh we'll mention the fundraiser as well. And you said a couple things that um were really important, you know, one is the posting for social media. Like I know exactly what you're talking about because um I'm a co-founder of a also a volunteer group called Rise to Reunite to help reunite the families that were separated at the border during the zero tolerance policy. And anytime when somebody posts something, shares our post, we're like Yes. Like you don't understand how just if you just click share on Facebook or you just repost or post on story and Instagram, it makes a huge difference because those people who are following you, we don't know. And it's just free exposure. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Second thing is, you know, just learning what other states are doing is so important. I'm in California. I'm in Los Angeles. Um, I, you know, obviously it's 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 there's a huge network here, a lot of work to be done here as well, Um, but learning what everybody else is doing and working together, teaming up. And now I know you, right? Now I know La Resistencia. Um, I think that's the only way that we could really stop all of this. Um, I have people sometimes ask like, well, what is the alternative if you don't detain these people? What is the alternative for these immigrants? Freedom, that's it. Exactly. (laughs) There's no need to detain anyone. That's the point. <laughs> That's the point. I tell them, I said, they're not criminals. They don't have to be, in, yeah, be detained at all. And, um, and some people just don't realize it, that, you know, what well, they crossed illegally and they have to be detained. I'm like, what do you mean? You know, these families are just trying to seek a better life. Um, these families have other people in their lives who live in the area who, you know, do have status, who will take care of them. They do not need to rely on the federal government to house them. Um, and, you know, so thank you. Thank you so much um, for all you do. You have definitely are so, like you're motivating me to do even more. Um, I, I can't wait for our, our listeners to, to hear what you have to say. When, when I go out to Washington, I'm going to look for you. We're going to have lunch um, yes. safely. <laughs> and whenever I meet people out there, I do know people, I'm going to send them, to you to help, and you know, for people to help, they could help remotely anyway, right? So anywhere in the country or mm-hmm. um, interpreters, all of that. Um, so looking forward to it. Um, love to have you on again in the future. Uh, keep you know, keep going. Keep, you know, work. Keep doing what you're doing. Just don't burn out. Um, and and you know, we're, we're definitely going to connect uh, more and build a relationship to see how we could help you guys too. So. Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: No, thank you for the opportunity. And yes, yes, let me know when you're in Washington. Happy to host you. And um, yeah, uh, you know, we always take the opportunities. We need these spaces. Um, This is how the movement is built, right? It's through those those connections that you mentioned, those spaces that we don't have. Um, Like you said, the the social media has become such a huge part of our lives. And Mm -hmm. being a volunteer organization, we don't pay to promote any of our our of our things Mm -hmm. Um, we really rely on people on the community to to get us where we need to get and you know we're like i said at at some point i mean we're crazy enough to believe we can do it and we have proven Mm -hmm. that we're able to do it so it's not it's not impossible it is so possible it's just imagine if everyone get together and then we do this we would have won you know years ago (laughs) yeah but we can still do it, and, and we hope that people join us. Again, if it's if not here in Tacoma, in your own areas, in different parts of the country, at the end of the day, it's our responsibility because if we let this continue happening, you know, sooner or later, it hits us all. And the idea is that no one has to go through any of these terrible experiences.
0: Absolutely. No, I can't wait for it to happen. It, it definitely is possible, and it is going to happen. I feel the movement. Um, I see, I hear the movement. Um, and it's, it's going to happen. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time, Maru. Thank you. Thank
1: you. This podcast is intended for general education and informational purposes only, and should not be regarded as either legal advice or a legal opinion. You should not act upon or use this publication or any of its contents for any specific situation. Recipients are cautioned to obtain legal advice from their legal counsel with respect to any decision or course of action contemplated in a specific situation. Clark Hill PLC and its attorneys provide legal advice only after establishing an attorney-client relationship through a written attorney-client engagement agreement. This recording does not establish an attorney-client relationship with any recipient.